Many laws have been created because someone in history was either wrongly accused of a crime, not given a fair trial, or even worse, they were murdered. Take the Son of Sam law as an example. It was enacted when serial killer David Berkowitz sold the rights to his story. The Son of Sam law prohibits criminals from profiting commercially from their crimes. Berkowitz might even be on today's list. I can safely say that I don't have him on my half of the countdown, but looking at some of the names I do have, the laws that were made in the aftermath of these crimes came too many years too late for the victims. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 crimes that changed laws. So when I think of crimes that changed laws, my first two that come to mind are the Amber Hagerman case and the creation of the Amber Alert. Definitely. Immediately, it was like, boom, Amber Alert. Yep. And the James Byrd and Matthew Shepard bill, the one, the creation of the Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Yep, yep. Immediately, because we covered Matthew Shepard and James Byrd on Morbid, and we talked about that act being brought into law. And honestly, it's horrible that such brutal and senseless crimes had to happen for these things to be created. But now, hopefully, it can stop or at least help in the future when it happens or stop it from happening altogether. For sure. That's the thing. I definitely thought of those three names when it came to bills being created. And for me, one of the first names that I also thought of was Rebecca Schaefer. Yes. Because her case, it took her murder to lead to actual stalking laws being put into action. Before that, there was nothing. So... It really is truly sad that these people had to lose their lives in order to get these bills passed. But like you said, hopefully it can lead to some kind of resolve here. Yeah, it's just really sad that it takes that for us to see it. It is. You know, my number one is one of the first cases that a lot of people learn when they take like a psychology class or a criminal justice class. Okay. It's a truly heinous crime in every way that it could be. But it also has this human psychology component that is still not completely understood to this day, in my opinion. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down there. Are you? I won't spoil it. (laughs) Well, some of the names that we've even mentioned right here and now might be appearing on the list, so I guess we should just get into this. You know, that's how this whole thing works. Elena has five crimes that changed laws, and so do I. But neither of us knows what crimes will be on the other one's list. Let's start the countdown. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. 
Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'll start us off with number 10, the murder of Claire Wood. Claire Wood was a British woman who was murdered by her ex-boyfriend in 2009. She was only 36 years old. Wood didn't know that her ex had a violent past. Claire Wood was strangled and set on fire by her ex-boyfriend, George Appleton, who had a history of violence against women. Wood ended the relationship in October of 2008 when she found out Appleton had been texting other women. After their relationship ended, Wood made several complaints to the police about him. She repeatedly told them that Appleton had caused criminal damage, harassed her, and threatened to kill her. Wood even had a panic alarm installed in her home. You would think something would be done. That's how scared she was, and the fact that nobody's doing anything here. Just a week before Appleton killed Wood, he was arrested for breaking down her front door. Like, come on. And then, a week after he killed Wood, he killed himself. After Wood's death, her father campaigned for a new law that would allow people to find out if their partner has a history of domestic abuse. The law came into effect across England and Wales in 2014. It's also known as the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme, or DVDS. The scheme allows the police to disclose information on request about a partner's previous history of domestic violence or violent acts. Information is only given to someone at risk or a person who is in a position to safeguard the victim. The policy has since been adopted by Australia and in parts of Canada. And it makes so much sense. We should have access to that information if you're dating somebody and if you're scared for your life. It could stop something like this happening so much earlier. Absolutely. At number nine is Ernesto Miranda and the Miranda Rights. You've heard them being said over and over again in crime movies. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you, etc., etc. This is the Miranda warning. Police are required to say it to anyone they take into custody, but this hasn't always been the case. On March 2nd, 1963, an 18-year-old Phoenix woman told police that she had been abducted and raped. She was given a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. A car that resembled that of her alleged attacker was traced to a man called Ernesto Miranda, who had a prior record. The woman didn't identify Miranda in a lineup, but he was still taken into police custody and interrogated. Miranda hadn't finished ninth grade and had a history of mental instability and also had no counsel present. The officers got a confession from Miranda, but it was brief and parts of it differed from the victim's account. At the trial, the prosecution's case only consisted of his confession, and he was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison for rape and kidnapping. Miranda tried to appeal to the Arizona Supreme Court, but they denied it. So Miranda took it to the U.S. Supreme Court, who agreed to hear his case in November 1965. As a result, the Supreme Court overturned his conviction, but he was retried and remained in prison until 1972. Because of Ernesto Miranda's case, since 1966, 
Anytime a person is in custody and about to be interrogated, they must be read their Miranda rights. It really just makes sense. It does, because especially hearing all that, I had a history of mental instability, mm-hmm. a ninth grade education, and somehow they get a confession from him. Right. It's like it needs to all be laid out for yeah. you beforehand. You need to understand all your rights, because no matter what, we all got them. Definitely. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of the crimes that changed laws, Clarence Earl Gideon. In 1963, the Supreme Court ruled that defendants facing substantial jail time deserved legal representation in state courts, even if they couldn't afford it. This law started with Clarence Earl Gideon, a drifter and a criminal from Missouri. Born in 1910, Clarence Earl Gideon left home when he was in eighth grade and spent much of his early life as a drifter and was also in and out of prisons. When he was out on parole in 1932, he struggled to find a job. He was uneducated, and his only work experience was at a shoe factory. So he went back to committing crimes and eventually found his way to Florida. In 1961, Gideon was accused of breaking into a pool hall. When he appeared in court, he wasn't able to afford an attorney, so he asked the judge to appoint one for him. The judge said that under Florida law, only defendants who were charged with a capital offense had the right to an attorney. So at his trial, Gideon represented himself, but despite his efforts, he was found guilty and sent to prison for five years. He began to research the law. He believed that he had been denied his constitutional right to legal representation, so he petitioned the Florida Supreme Court to have his sentence overturned, but it was denied. So Clarence Gideon took his grievance to the U.S. Supreme Court. He wrote the court a letter on lined prison paper and said, quote, It makes no difference how old I am or what color I am or what church I belong to, if any. The question is, I did not get a fair trial. The question is very simple. I requested the court to appoint me an attorney and the court refused. Pretty simple. That's black and white right there. The Supreme Court agreed to hear his case, and on March 18, 1963, all nine members of the court ruled in favor of Clarence Gideon. They ruled that under the U.S. Constitution, state courts are required to appoint lawyers for those individuals accused of committing a crime who cannot pay for legal representation. Thousands of people who had been tried and convicted without legal representation were granted new trials because of Gideon's work. That's so wild. It really is. Gideon got a new trial and was acquitted of robbing the pool hall. That's insane. And it just goes to show you, like, you do need... Representation matters. Absolutely. It really does. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of all the laws. No. I would never be able to represent myself. And there's so many and there's different loopholes and everything like that. Of course. Seven. At number seven this week is the Camden Wonder. In August 1660, William Harrison vanished one night with the rents he had been collecting in the picturesque English town of Chipping Camden. His hat and a bloodstained cloth were found, but there was no dead body. Even though there wasn't a body, Harrison's servant confessed to killing him. The servant also said that his mother and brother were involved in the killing too. All three were hanged for Harrison's disappearance. That escalated very quickly. It certainly did. But then two years later in 1662, William Harrison returned to Chipping Camden, saying that he had been kidnapped and had been taken to a Turkish harem from which he had escaped. Wow, this is like getting what crazy is right now. 
This bizarre case changed English law. For close to 300 years after this incident, there was something called a no-body, no-murder principle. This meant that a murder could not be proved without a body. If you think of all the cases that we've covered that do not have a body, yep. and all the people who definitely murdered them, yep. that's so crazy to think about. Absolutely. And it's so hard to prove without a body. It is. Still. But it's possible. But you got to do it. But in 1934, this changed when Thomas Joseph Davidson was charged with the murder of his eight-year-old son. That's horrific. Davidson confessed to the murder and he was sentenced to death even though there wasn't a dead body. Horrific. Seriously. The principle was officially abolished in 1954. And since then, a murder conviction in that country can now be based on circumstantial evidence if it is, quote, compelling and convincing enough. That's the thing, and that makes sense to me. It really does. The compelling and convincing enough? Yeah. For sure. Compel me. And how many times have we seen people like hide these bodies or dispose of them in ways where they won't be found? Where they couldn't even bring them forward if they wanted to. Right. Yeah. Also on our list at number six is the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr.'s tragic killings in 1998 horrified the country. Even though they lived several states away from one another, their deaths were starkly familiar. Both were motivated by hate. Their deaths would eventually change a law, but not fast enough. On June 7, 1998, 49-year-old father of three, James Byrd, was walking home late at night when three white men, at least one of whom Byrd knew, pulled up beside him. Byrd was well-known and well-liked in his hometown of Jasper, Texas, so when he was offered a ride, he got in the car. The men tortured and brutally murdered Byrd and dumped his remains near a black church. The men were later revealed to be white supremacists who had tattoos of Aryan pride and Nazi symbols disgusting. Yep. The killing of Matthew Shepard was equally tragic. Shepard was a gay student who was beaten to death by Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson near Laramie, Wyoming in October 1998. McKinney and Russell offered Shepard a ride home from a bar, but instead of taking him home, they beat him, tied him to a wooden fence, and left him there to die. Both of these are the two most horrific assaults and murders. And just the way that they came out of absolutely nowhere. These two men were minding their own business. nothing wrong. Living their own lives, didn't approach these men at all to do anything, say anything. They're both so senseless and clearly so motivated by just pure hate and evil. Mm -hmm. It's so sad. And it's disgusting that people can have that much hate in them for someone they don't even know from a hole in the wall. That's the thing that did nothing. Like, they could be one of the most amazing people on the planet. And these two men really were, like, amazing, great people. And very Mm well-liked. In 1998, then-President Bill Clinton listed the cases of James Byrd and Matthew Shepard as reasons why the federal hate crimes law needed to be expanded and later said it was among his priorities. But the act didn't get passed until 2009 under President Obama. The act, known as the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Crimes Prevention Act, expanded the 1968 United States hate crime law. It added a new federal law that, quote, criminalizes willfully causing bodily injury based on, quote, actual or perceived religion, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. 
The act also provides funding and technical assistance to state, local, and tribal jurisdictions to help them more effectively investigate and prosecute hate crimes. How sad is it that we need to have this? It really is. A lot of these. It's just so sad. It says a lot about humanity. The fact that laws are created so late is what gets me. I understand that it's like something usually needs to spark it into creation, but it's like people have to lose their lives for these things to happen in like brutal ways. Like somebody needs to be taken away from their family. Like the Matthew Shepard and the James Bird case are two of the most brutal cases I've ever studied before. They truly are. But then you think of things like the Miranda rights. Mm -hmm. We think of those as always being around. You just don't think about it. I was going to say that it's so crazy to think that like somebody was arrested in the past and like didn't hear you have the right to remain silent. Like it's so crazy. And that they were just arrested with zero rights. Right. And that anything could happen and Mm -hmm. a confession could come out of nowhere. And you know where that probably came from. No right to an attorney. No right to remain silent. Zero rights. Yeah, it really makes you think twice. It does. And I actually, my number one sparks the creation of something else that you're going to be like, wait a second, I can't believe that wasn't always around. Mm, I have a number on here, which is going to make you feel the exact same way. Let's go. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of crimes that changed laws. Starting off the second half of our list, Casey Anthony and Kaylee's Law. Casey Anthony pops up again this week. Casey Anthony, of course, was accused of murdering her two-year-old daughter Kaylee in 2008. Casey Anthony faced first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter charges. 
And just a quick refresher on what happened, Kaylee Anthony was last seen on June 16th, 2008. But she wasn't reported missing until July 15th. So remember, she's two. The person who reported her missing wasn't her mom, Casey Anthony, but Casey's mom, who told police that she had found Casey's car and it smelled like a dead body. On December 11th, 2008, Kaylee's remains were found in a wooded area half a mile from Casey Anthony's home. Although Casey Anthony was found not guilty on the serious charges, she was convicted on four counts of lying to law enforcement. It's also so wild to me that she was not convicted. It remains the thing that angers me the most to In this day. most of America, I would say. Anthony lied about where she worked, a non-existent nanny, about leaving Kaylee with friends, and about receiving a phone call from Kaylee. This conviction carried a maximum sentence of four years in prison. But because she had already served time between her arrest and the trial in 2011, she didn't have to face any prison time because of time already served. It's like a slap on the I, wrist for what she did. I can't even cover this case in full. No. We haven't on Morbid and we probably never will because I can't. I'll lose my damn mind. Same here. Directly after the not guilty verdict for the more serious charges, a woman from Oklahoma started a change.org petition and Facebook page because she wanted there to be a law that would enforce parents to immediately report a missing child. And how heinous is it that there has to be a law put in order for parents to immediately report their child missing? There's something wrong if I have to say, hey, parent, you gotta you go should ahead probably and do let that. the police know that your child has been missing for a month. Like, come on, she's but two. Still to this day, it happens. There was just recently a few cases actually yeah. where the parents didn't report their child missing. And it nine times out of 10 turns out one particular way in yep. the end. Lawmakers soon started drafting new legislation that would require parents and guardians to report a missing child in a timely manner. Unreal. Several states have adopted the law, which is nicknamed Kaylee's Law. The law makes it a felony to give false information to mislead law enforcement during an investigation about a missing child 16 years or younger to the police. One state that recognizes the law is Florida, where Kaylee Anthony's body was found. If the law had been put in place before Kaylee's disappearance and murder, Casey Anthony could have served up to 20 years in prison, which, which she, she deserved. deserved. That and so much more. Mm -hmm. Four. Landing at number four this week is Rebecca Schaefer. Rebecca Schaefer was a young actress and model who starred in the 80s sitcom My Sister Sam. But at just 21 years old, she was killed by an obsessed fan. The saddest story. We covered this on Morbid and mm -hmm. it was gut-wrenching. Rebecca Schaefer was born in 1967 in Oregon. She got into modeling as a teen, which led her to New York City. She eventually got a role in the show My Sister Sam, which moved her to California in 1986. The show aired between 1986 and 88, and the fan base grew quickly. Schaefer was soon getting movie roles and was the cover girl for Seventeen Magazine's March 1987 issue. She had even scored a role in The Godfather Part Three. But then, on July 18, 1989, a 19-year-old fan knocked on her front door. The fan, Robert John Bardo, 
had hired a private investigator to track down her address, who obtained it from the California DMV records. Shame on that private investigator. Truly. You should not be tracking down an actress's physical address. Home address. Yeah. That's wild. And just the fact that the DMV back then could give that information out. Yeah. Crazy. Bardo was carrying a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, a card that Schaefer had sent him, and also had a photo of her. She told Bardo to take care and close the door. He returned an hour later, and when she opened the door, he shot her in the heart. Bardo was later found running down a freeway shouting, I killed Rebecca Schaefer. Ugh. And the saddest thing about this whole case, in my opinion, other than the fact that she was killed, is the fact that she was so sweet to him. Yeah. She had written him back letters. Mm -hmm. He had a signed photo from her that she sent to him. Like, she was a very nice person. Oh, yeah. It was later revealed that he was also obsessed with pop stars Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. Bardo decided to kill Schaefer after seeing her in a love scene in one of her films. It made him angry, and he decided he needed to punish her for it. Disgusting. For a fake role that she was doing. You're disgusting. A year after her death in 1990, California passed the U.S.'s first ever anti-stalking laws, which makes it a felony to cause another or their family to be in a reasonable fear for their safety and carries a state prison sentence. 1990. Is when First it was like, hey, don't ever. stalk people. First ever stalking yeah. laws. So crazy to me. The fact that it took us that long to be like, whoa, yeah, don't, don't do stalk that. people. Right. That turns out bad. And the fact that it took a woman, a young woman who was in the prime of her life to mm-hmm. lose her life is yeah. just so sad. As of this recording, the law is recognized in all 50 states. And Rebecca Schaefer's murder, in part, inspired the passing of the Driver's Privacy Protection Act. This is a federal law that limits the release of home addresses obtained from the State Department of Motor Vehicles. Again, what? Why was that ever allowed? Like, can you imagine? I think we can all understand that just handing out someone's home address to somebody being like, hello, can I have this person's home address? Is a bad idea. Seriously. Three. Number three on our countdown of crimes that changed laws is Adam Walsh. And just a heads up, this crime involves a child and is particularly graphic. On July 27, 1981, six-year-old Adam John Walsh was abducted from a mall in Hollywood, Florida. His head was discovered on August 10, 1981, but his body was never recovered. Adam's father, John Walsh, channeled his grief into advocacy work for crime victims and also became the host of America's Most Wanted. Before he was abducted, Adam Walsh was watching some older boys play video games in the toy department of a Sears store. When his mother went back for him about 10 minutes later, he had disappeared. A security guard had asked the older boys to leave because they were causing trouble. Adam followed one of the older boys outside, and this is when it's thought he was kidnapped. Two years later, in 1983, Otis Elwood Toole, an inmate at a Florida prison, confessed to killing Adam. But police weren't able to locate Adam's body where Toole said it was buried. So without any evidence proving that Toole was the killer, the Florida state attorney couldn't prosecute him. Over the next few years, Toole would take back his confession and then later confess to it again. Toole died in prison in 1996 while serving five life sentences for other crimes. The serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was also a suspect at one point. 
Adam's dad, John Walsh, has dedicated his life to fighting for victims of crime. In 1984, he co-founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is so important. Truly. So important. I would give them like all my money. Literally, I would give them every paycheck I ever get. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he was the host of America's Most Wanted for many years. The show has helped track down hundreds of fugitives over the years. In 2006, then-President George W. Bush signed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act into law. This law created a national database of child abuse offenders, expanded the National Sex Offenders Registry, and strengthened penalties for crimes against children. In 2008, 27 years after Adam Walsh's murder, the Hollywood, Florida Police Department decided the case against Otis Toole was strong enough to close the case. That's so crazy. 27 years later. So sad. And it's horrific. That whole case. And Otis Tool as a person. It's genuinely. Oh, Adam Walsh's murder is like one, one of, of the, the saddest things I've ever read about. Six years old. And they found his head. Unreal. And the fact that John Walsh was able to translate that into creating laws, creating foundations, right. helping other victims of crimes is like really something to just be in awe of. Yeah, he's an amazing, yeah. very inspirational human being. In the Rebecca Shaver case, I've read about it so <sighs> many times and we've talked about it countless times, but it never, ever makes sense in my brain that stalking laws did not exist yes, before this. That's the because thing. Because it doesn't feel, and realistically, it just wasn't that long ago. No, and it feels, I'm always thinking the 90s were like 10 years ago. I, I will just like forever be in that state of mind. For real. But either way, it's like, that's way too late. It is. For us to be just understanding that people shouldn't stalk people. Right. And that people who do stalk people are dangerous and need to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. I feel like this list has been so hard to get through because I've just been getting so angry. I know. And I'm waiting for one in particular that I'm pretty positive you must have, I think. I'm thinking it's probably what you're waiting for. It's another hard one. And based off of what you said, actually, in the beginning, I'm waiting for one. So the psychology aspect might have gotcha. Yeah. Because I did take psych in college. Let's see. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of crimes that changed laws. At number two is Amber Hagerman and Amber's Law. By now, I'm sure most of us have received an Amber Alert on our phones. It signifies that a child has been reported missing. Well, Amber Alerts came about from a law that was enacted in the aftermath of the abduction and killing of nine-year-old Amber Hagerman. Arlington, Texas, 1996. Amber Hagerman was riding her pink bicycle alongside her younger brother in a parking lot of an abandoned supermarket. Her brother decided to head to his grandparents. Before Amber could join him, she was snatched by a man who was driving a black pickup truck. Four days later, a man who was out walking found Amber's body near a stream about four miles from where she was taken. Following Amber's murder, Diana Simone, a Texas mom, was inspired to think of a way to send out a warning when a child disappears. 
she figured that if you can send a warning about the weather, why not for a missing child? Exactly. Which is such a good way to put that. Yeah. Also, if the person knows there's eyes on them, sometimes they'll give up. Exactly. Simone called a local radio station with her idea of an emergency system for a missing child. She wanted radio stations to interrupt broadcasts with an alert when a child was reported missing to the police. This would become known as Amber's Plan. It was renamed the Amber Alert, with Amber standing for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. Amber Alerts are used in all 50 states today, as well as D.C., Puerto Rico, and 33 countries. Alerts now pop up on people's cell phones and on digital billboards. And also in 1996, President Bill Clinton signed into law the Amber Hagerman Child Protection Act. The act created the National Sex Offender Registry. It also requires life in prison without parole for two-time sex offenders whose victims are children. Yeah, it does. Which is amazing. Necessary. So incredibly necessary. I also think it should be like one-time sex offenders whose victims are children, but... Me too. You know, we'll get there. As of this recording, Amber Hagerman's case remains unsolved. That's so sad. It's so crazy, too. The fact that somebody could just pull up in a truck, snatch her, Mm -hmm. kill her, and then disappear into the world is unacceptable. It truly is. And if there was Amber Alerts, who knows? Who knows what would happen? That's the thing. They were able to get away. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 crimes that changed laws, Kitty Genovese. The 1964 murder of Kitty Genovese in Queens, New York, forever changed the way we contact the emergency services and also set in stone a law that would protect people who step in and help people who are in danger. I was waiting for this one. This is the one that I figured everybody would know. Yep. 28-year-old Catherine Kitty Genovese worked as a bar manager in Queens, New York. In the early hours of March 13, 1964, around 2.30 a.m., she left her bar job for the night and headed home in her car. She didn't notice that a man began to follow her in his car after she left the bar where she worked. After she reached a parking lot near her house, he pulled over and followed her on foot. 2.30 in the morning. I know. Can you imagine this? Absolutely not. As she approached the front door of her apartment building, the man, Winston Mosley, grabbed her. She started screaming, please help me. A neighbor of Genovese's ran to help her, while another neighbor called the police. In the space of 30 minutes, she was robbed, raped, and stabbed to death. It's always mind-boggling to me how quickly this happened. 30 minutes it took for him to do the worst that you can do to a person. Genovese died in the stairwell of her apartment building. Officers on the scene said that there were dozens of neighbors who witnessed the attacks on Genovese, but didn't do anything, which wasn't quite true. I know. And that's another crazy part of this case, because I remember learning about this and hearing that and being like, what? There's so much misinformation surrounding this. There is. The New York Times didn't help this rumor when two weeks after Kitty Genovese's murder, they wrote a front page story that got picked up by major media outlets around the country. They ran with the headline, quote, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. It's also such a specific number. It really is. It was later revealed that only about six people actually witnessed parts of the events. According to Newsweek, the number of people who may have heard her screams remains in dispute. 
a man in the neighborhood did in fact try and help. He opened his window and shouted, leave that girl alone, causing Winston Mosley to run away and leaving Genevieve wounded. But Mosley soon returned and continued attacking Genevieve, this time killing her. The fact that he came back... That's the other thing that in this is the, case. the scariest part of this case, in my opinion. Like, f- knowing full well there's people watching and he came back. But he just kept coming. Usually they run and that's it. Yeah. If somebody catches them, it's like, they're gone. They don't want to get caught. He didn't even care. He mm-hmm. came back to inflict more damage. The New York Times, many, many years later, said that their original story was, quote, erroneous and exaggerated. Good timing. It's like, how, many, did, many that, years later. how did that story get passed? In the midst of the media storm over Genovese's case, and with people believing the New York Times article that claimed no one helped, psychologists started writing about something they called the bystander effect. The bystander effect is basically the greater the number of bystanders at a crime, the less likely any one of them will intervene. Genovese's case and the bystander effect that stemmed from it led to the adoption of Good Samaritan laws. These laws protect bystanders who step in to help someone they believe is injured or in danger. Very important laws. Mm -hmm. And Genovese's murder also inspired the start of the emergency 911 system. How crazy is that? Because this was the 60s and 911 did not exist. Did not exist. And the system that was in place was not necessarily a great one. Exactly, because before then, to call the police, you had to call your nearest precinct or dial zero, which would connect you to a phone operator who would then connect you to the police. And in that amount of time, precious time. In that amount of time, as we've seen, a woman could be raped, stabbed, and killed. Easily. And left for dead. In 1968, the first 911 call was officially made. Bananas. Almost the 70s. It's so wild to me. It is. It really is. I would say the creation of 911 and those Good Samaritan laws that's definitely number one. A hundred percent. With Amber Hagerman, I would say tied at number one. I That would be a hard one to place. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they should definitely be tied and they kind of are. So This one's a hard one because also you're like the Miranda rights are real big. Like that's a huge. I know. The Hate Crimes Prevention Act. That's a huge one. It's like I could put them all at number one. This yeah. could just be a number one list. Yeah, seriously. And I can't think of anything that they left off. I know. I was trying to think while we were going through and I couldn't come up with anything. I'm sure. I mean, how many bills and laws are there? So maybe we could do a part two. You never know. I can't think of anything that off the top of my head. Right. So good job, Parcast Research Gods. No, we haven't been able to get you that much you lately. You broke my heart with these, but I appreciate it. Yeah, seriously. Well, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far, <laughs> you can listen to Morbid anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A morbid podcast we hope you keep it weird until monday crime countdown is executive produced by max cutler and is a spotify original from parcast it was created by max cutler sound design by Kristen acevedo with associate sound design by kevin mcalpine fact checking by cheyenne lopez research by jay cahio it's produced by john cohen Kristen acevedo and jonathan ratliff with production assistance by ron shapiro 
We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. 